0: i Have heard uh, the news, but over the weekend, uh, Red Mulkey went to be with the Lord, and uh, no, we will miss him uh, very much. Um, I can't tell you how many times I'd go up to Red and I would say, "Red, how you doing today?" And he would say, "Still upright." And when I when I heard of of him and the news that he went to be with the Lord, that's the first thing that popped in my mind. He's much better than upright now. He's he's with his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also really really good to see Esther. I, don't, I saw you early on, didn't get a chance to visit with you. Hi, Esther. It's really good to see you. And for Joan Scales, where's Joan? Sitting with my family? Joan, what a, what a blessing it is to see you as well. So we've, we've missed you both very much. This morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. The title of the message this morning is The Quest for Real Life. For generations now, uh, people have been on a quest. They've been on a quest for something much greater than themselves. And there are various ways of describing this quest, depending on the, the tradition that you come from or the background that you've been raised in. But at the end of the day, the quest for real life is the quest for eternal life. Saint Augustine said it best, I believe, when he said, "O oh Lord, O oh Lord, you have created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you." And so, millions and millions of people all around the world search for reality. They search for what I like to call the real thing. You remember the ad. If you're as old as me, you can remember in the late 70s and the early 80s, there was a company who laid claim to the real thing. Do you remember who that was? It was none other than Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is the real thing. Sugar water is the real thing. Well, I think we can all agree that whether you like Coke or not, that Coca-Cola is certainly not the real thing. The fact is that people are on a desperate search for meaning in life. They think that a a sports car will give them all that they need in life. They think that money will provide relief. They think that sexual pleasure will help them through life. They think that alcohol or other possessions will help them. Some think they can find it in power or pleasure or hedonism. Others find real life through pleasure or fame. However, the search, as we all know, for real life comes up empty every time as they pursue these various things. Last week, I shared really a frightening statistic with you, a recent statistic, that a study was held where 91% of adults agree that the best way to find yourself is by looking within. I mean, that's almost as bad as saying that Coca-Cola is the real thing. 86% of adults say that to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue things that you desire most. And so the quest for real life, if I can boil it down, is the quest for meaning. Yet even the search for so-called meaning in our culture is becoming very marginalized, and it leaves people in a very precarious position, to say the least. Many of you are familiar with uh, Dr. Ravi Zacharias. Dr. Zacharias recounts a story where he was actually lecturing on this particular subject. The title of his lecture was, Man's Search for Meaning. And during that time, a student arose to his feet and he shouted, Wait a minute, wait a minute, everything in life is meaningless. And if you've ever had a chance to see Ravi Zacharias, you know that he is not bashful. He is not ashamed to call people on the carpet. Ravi insisted publicly with the student that he couldn't possibly believe that everything is meaningless. With an equally intense retort. This young man countered that he certainly did believe that everything was meaningless. So we have this one-on-one debate in a public forum. This repetitive exchange went back and forth a few times. And then not wanting to exacerbate this discussion any longer and to exacerbate the young man's frustration, Ravi decided to bring this little discussion to an end. He asked the student if he thought that his statement was a meaningful one. (laughs) It's really mean. And there was an acute silence, and then suddenly the student responded, well, yes, my statement is meaningful. And Ravi only had to add that if his assertion was meaningful, then everything in life was not meaningless. If, on the other hand, everything was meaningless, his assertion then was meaningless too, and therefore, in effect, he had said nothing. <laughs> I've seen this several times in exchanges that Ravi has been in. Suffice it to say, the quest for meaning and the quest for real life is indeed a very real thing. The quest for eternal life, I believe, is, is literally etched upon our hearts as we realize that we were made for something more. Pascal discovered this, the, the brilliant French thinker, said that each of, his, each of us is created with a, a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. And the only thing that can fill that void, the only thing that can fill that vacuum is none other than God himself. Now this morning, I hope that you have a, a pencil or a pen, or if you're a uh, a fan of the iPad or the Kindle, you can whip out your digital device, your tablet. And I want you to uh, engage in a brief exercise with me. Before we open the Word of God and, and read our passage together, I want to ask a very, very important question. For many of you, you are going to think it's the most basic question that could ever be posed. But it's a challenging one, I'll admit. Here's the question. Exactly what is eternal Life. What is it? If you could sum it up, what would eternal life involve? And so we're going to do a little quiz. I want you with your tablet or your iPad or your pen or your, your paper to write down this statement. Eternal life is dot dot dot. Don't write dot 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 because that's your answer. This isn't a term paper. This isn't an essay, this isn't a a thesis or a dissertation, it's simply one sentence. I think this would be helpful if you would wrestle with the answer to this question before we dive into this passage. Eternal life is blank. While you're thinking about that, while you're writing your answer, and then comparing your answer with Jesus Christ's answer, let me add... That many, and some of you this morning, I can almost guarantee, have written the word heaven. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but this would be the dominant answer. Eternal life means spending eternity in heaven. Others of you may attach the notion of rewards, eternal rewards, to this matter of eternal life. And while Going to heaven while receiving eternal rewards are, in fact, aspects of eternal life. They do not address the core of the issue. And so I know what some of you are thinking. You're asking, Pastor, if I wrote down heaven, am I wrong? Yes. Heaven is not the answer. Eternal rewards are not the answer. They are a part of the answer, but they don't go to the essence of the answer. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, defines real life for us. And it's found in the opening verses of John chapter 17. Would you stand with me as we read our passage together? Last week we concluded in John chapter 16. I want to read that short verse to give the context as we move in to this very, very important section of Scripture. scripture. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, when Jesus had spoken these words, that is verse 33 in the words preceding, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have has sent let's pray together father we thank you for the the wonderful answer that we have already received we have barely begun and we we see the essence in verse 3 of eternal life from the lips of your son and our savior god I pray that today would be a, a day that is filled with encouragement God, I pray that today would be a day where uh, our minds and our hearts would be filled, as we heard in the call to worship, with the Word of God. I pray that you would remove distractions. I pray that you would move barriers, that you would remove all things that would get in the way of helping us as your people to understand these very, very important words. And I pray that you would uh, prepare us not only for today, But as we spend several weeks in John chapter 17, a very, very important uh, selection in your word. And so may your spirit guide us. May your spirit uh, give me the words today to proclaim the word of God that would be of good service to your people. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. We refer to this section of scripture as John In John chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer. And before I get into this, I want to give a a little bit of background information. So many, many months ago, I believe this is, believe it or not, the 62nd sermon in the gospel of John. And we have a lot more to, to go until we get to the end of this gospel. But when we got to, I can't remember off the top of my head, we got to roughly chapter 14, I believe... I began to anticipate John chapter 17. It is one of my favorite chapters in, in all of sacred scripture. And I begin to grow somewhat restless and somewhat fearful. Because in John chapter 17, in the so-called high priestly prayer, we will face some very, very, not only very important theology, we will face some, as we will see in a few minutes, some controversial theology we will begin to uncover doctrines like predestination and election. And those tend to be controversial, whether you come from a Baptist background or a Presbyterian background or a Episcopalian background, even more so if you come from a charismatic background, an Assembly of God background. Uh, These are, are weighty, weighty matters. And so if you remember, we did something a little bit unusual. I stopped preaching through the Gospel of John. Do you remember that? That's why I remember telling Jason, stop, hold the boat, we're done with John for about, I can't remember, 15 or 16 weeks. And then we went through a study on the attributes of God. And here's the reason. It wasn't because I was bored with John. The reason was because I wanted to help us as a church family to to get grounded in what theologians call theology proper. That's a fancy way of saying learning about the attributes of God. Because if we get God right, if we understand who God is, when we get to the doctrine of predestination, brace yourself, you will love the doctrine of predestination. If you get God wrong, when you get to the doctrine of predestination, you're going to fight it all the way to the end of the story. And so that's the reason for the study on the attributes of God. Now we come to John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, where Jesus Christ prays this very, very intense prayer shortly before his arrest and his, his ultimate crucifixion. Now, Jesus acknowledges a few things that I want to draw your attention to. And these are very important things that surface in verses 1 and 2. And the first thing that he says, which attracted my attention, is this, The hour has come. Now, with your Bibles open in John chapter 17, would you notice back in chapter 16, back in chapter 16, verse 32, he told his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming. Now he's moved from the hour is coming to "The hour has come." The hour has come. All the events in redemptive history now will culminate in the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to uh, put on your wide-angle lenses. Some of you have really nice cameras. Those of you that have the really nice cameras, not just the iPhone camera, we're talking about the, the really nice uh, cameras that have a wide-angle lens. We want to look for a moment at the wide-angle lens in Scripture. And in fact, today, we're going to start with the wide-angle, and then we're going to break out the microscope. And we're going to go after a few very important words. To begin with, with the wide-angle lens, I want you to think about the first promise of Redeemer. Some people would say it occurs in John chapter 1. Others that are more wide in their thinking would say, no, it's not in John chapter 1, it's Genesis chapter 3. Because after the fall of man, after the fall of Adam and Eve, we read these words in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here is the promise made to our first father and our first mother that in the future there will be a redeemer. And that redeemer's heel will be crushed, but he will, actually it will be bruised, the text says, but he will speaking of the Redeemer, will crush the head of the serpent. And now we find this promise of a Redeemer surfacing throughout Scripture. There are many verses that we could share. Here are a few. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, For truly in this city, there are gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. That is just a a foretaste. That is just an, an appetizer for the doctrine of predestination. That the cross of Jesus Christ, like every other event in redemptive history, is predetermined, is predestined by a sovereign God. In 1 Peter one twenty, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in last times for the sake of you. Ephesians 3.10 and 11, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, even as he, that is God, even as God chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, speaks of a God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own Purpose and grace, which he gave us in Jesus Christ, when? Before the ages began. I must confess to you that when I learn about these weighty doctrines, it brings a smile to my face. Because if it were not for the doctrine of predestination, if it were not for the doctrine of predestination, I would go to an eternal hell. And that tends to help people that struggle with this weighty doctrine. Apart from the doctrine of predestination, we'd all go to hell. We would all go to hell. And so Jesus says, first, the hour has come. All the events in redemptive history have come to this point. They culminate in the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second thing he says. He says, glorify your son. He says to the Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And we will see this as a theme. We will see this theme running throughout the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. We will see that Jesus Christ has a holy passion to glorify his Father. And while many times Jesus prays for the people of God, he prays for his 11 disciples, and he prays for all of the people of God in the future, including us. But we also see that he prays for himself, namely, that the Father would glorify the Son. Now look also in verse 2 at this statement. He says, You have given him... Now, you know that I'm, I'm really big on personal pronouns. We have to wrestle with those personal pronouns. You have given Him. That is to say, God the Father, you, as Jesus lifts His eyes to heaven, you have given Him, speaking of Himself, God the Father has given Jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life, To all whom you have given him. You see, Jesus' authority is a delegated authority. And as I wrote those words, I thought, there will be a few who ask, What in the world are you talking about? Speak in English. What is a delegated authority? Well, those of you with children, if you can leave your children, if they're old enough, you can leave them for a few days. Generally, this is what happens. In fact, I remember this, this happened off the top of my head. I don't believe the clerks are here, but when, when the clerks, when, when Lauren and Marianne went to Australia, was it Australia or New Zealand? I think it was Australia. I remember going to the kids and asking, who's in charge? What do you think the answer was? Only one. Only one. And what is his name? I think he's here. Where's Josh? Josh is in charge, right? Now, Josh, where are you at? Josh, are you always in charge, Josh? You are? Really? Wow. Okay, that's the end of the sermon. (laughs) When your mom and dad are there, are you still in charge, Josh? Oh, no. So when Lauren and Marianne leave and they say, Boys and girls, your big brother's in charge. That's what you call a delegated authority. Lauren, as the leader of his home, is delegating this authority to the oldest child, to the oldest son. And so Jesus Christ now, his authority is a delegated authority. This is an authority that has been sovereignly granted to him now by God the Father. And this delegated authority puts Jesus in a position of granting eternal life, of granting real life to, note this, a specific group. That might be new for you. He's granted authority to to give salvation to a specific group that we will explore in great detail, not only today, but throughout the rest of our study. And in verse 2, the specific group is revealed to us. Look at it with me. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, Since you have given Him authority over all flesh. Here's the answer. To give eternal life to whom? All whom you have given Him. That is the designated group. That is the designated group. Now, the word given... This is a word that is going to occur throughout John chapter 17, especially in the opening verses. The word given comes from a Greek word that can be translated appointed. And so the son is given authority from God. He's given authority from God the Father to bestow eternal life on whomever God appointed in eternity past. Now, once again, it has been my experience as... I cannot believe I've been serving as a pastor for almost 25 years now. In fact, it's a little over 25 years. But over that 25-year period has been my experience that many people struggle with the doctrine of predestination. They struggle with the idea that God predestines some and passes over others. And I only want to say in passing this morning that... We will continue to chew on the doctrine of predestination, not only today, but throughout the gospel of John chapter 17. I want to encourage you to do this. If you struggle with this doctrine, realize, first of all, that I understand the struggle. For several years, I battled with clenched fists. I am not kidding. The doctrine of predestination. I battled it. And so if you struggle with the doctrine, know that I I empathize, that I understand that struggle. But I want to encourage you to open your hearts and open your minds to this very important doctrine. If you're resisting the biblical reality of sovereign grace, my heart would be, my prayer would be, that you would remain open to receive this truth. That you would not only taste the truth, that you would not only ingest the truth, but that you would one day very soon, and maybe even today, that you would savor this great doctrinal reality. And Jesus comes to verse 3 where he utters these three, these very incredible words that will be the focus of our study today. Look at them with me. He says, and this is eternal life. It's almost as if he's saying, here's the definition, here's the answer, and the answer is not heaven. Notice that? He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here's the big question I want to have you wrestle with this morning with me. Is where do we turn? Where do we turn for real life? Where is it that we receive the deepest answer to the questions of life? And there are three realities that surface in verse 3. I want to point those to you. The first is this, is we need to realize the meaning of eternal life. We need to realize the meaning of eternal life. And if you haven't picked it up yet, the answer is very plain in verse 3. And that is this, eternal life is knowing God. God. That is the definition of eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. Exactly what is it? Eternal life is real life. It is genuine. It is a life that is filled with authenticity. It is a life that is devoted to God that has a deep trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word eternal in the Greek means without end. It means unceasing, everlasting, And eternal life refers not only to eternal uh, quality, but divine quality of life as well. I want to ask this question. What does it mean then to know God? There's a very important word. I want to give it to you. It's the word ginosko. The Greek word ginosko translated generally to know. It means to know. The Greek word ginosko Goes further, though, it means experiential knowledge. It means experiential knowledge. This is a knowledge that is grounded in personal experience. If you gnosco someone, it means you not only know their name, but you're intimately familiar with them. You know their loves and their dislikes. You know their strengths. You know all about that particular person. Gnosko expresses a, a, an intimate relationship of, of trust between two people. And while the Greeks in the, the first and the second centuries were concerned with what you might call a detached knowledge that didn't have any basis in experience, the Old Testament now regards knowledge as something that continually arises out of personal encounter. And we understand this, I think, with, uh, with much clarity. You think about Moses and the relationship he had with God. Do you think Moses had an experiential relationship with God? You bet he did. Do you think that Abraham had an experiential relationship with God? You bet he did. Do you think that Jonah had an experiential relationship with God? Of course. Now the present the present tense of this verb to know indicates ongoing action. It means I get to know this God I love. Now Jereen and I will celebrate our twenty fifth wedding anniversary here in uh, a few weeks. That's pretty exciting, right? It's big stuff. It's great. I can tell you this, and I hope Jereen would say the same about me. I know more about Jereen now. I have some stories. I'm kidding. I know more about Jerrine now than I did 25 years ago. Better yet, I love her more now than I did 25 years ago. And I would hope she would say, I know lots of things about my husband. And I have some stories. She has more stories than I do. Right? Not all of them good. And I hope she would say, I love him more now than I did when I met him back in 1991 and that's what it's like with god when we have this experiential knowledge with god we we know him we experience him we, and that grows on a daily basis and so when jesus says now this is eternal life that they may know you this is a combination of the head and the heart this is a combination of what we know in the mind and what we experience in our emotions Now here's one thing that's important to understand. If you have the one and eliminate the other, you have what you might call a lopsided Christianity. And so it works something like this. There is a danger of focusing exclusively on experience. You understand that danger? We see it many, many corners of Christendom all around the world. If you focus on experiencing God, what I have learned is that leads to a lack of discernment. It leads to a lack of discernment. It leads to an excessive Christianity. It leads to an emotionalism. It leads to a a worldview that casts aside doctrine and says, I just want to love Jesus. I don't want to know Jesus. I want to love Jesus. And nothing could be further from the truth and the word of God. We are called to know Jesus. We are called to love Jesus, to combine the head and the heart. And at the end of the day, when a person says, I only want to experience Jesus, but I, I, I don't want the academic side of Jesus, I don't want the doctrinal side of Jesus, here is what we learn at the end of the day. That person does not know Jesus. But there is the other side of the coin as well. There are those who say, I'm frightened of the experiential. I want to focus on the doctrinal. I want to focus on the theological. And when a person only focuses on the theological end and neglects experiencing God, we have what you might call, uh, as the British say, laboratory syndrome, right? I love the way that's pronounced to the laboratory. Laboratory. Isn't that right, Linda? I'm saying it right. It's laboratory syndrome. It's all I do is Bible studies and read theology and do Bible studies and read, 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 read. And I never interact with anyone. That's one of the dangers of focusing on the mind but neglecting the experiential. Additionally, this kind of person is simply out of touch with reality. You've ever known such a person? They're out of touch with reality. There is an unhealthy, quote unquote, intellectualism attached to this. There is a critical spirit, and Jonathan Edwards addressed this in the 18th century. He says, Where there's a kind of light without heat, a head stored with notions and speculations with a cold and unaffected heart, you see what he's saying? If you only focus on the mind and you neglect the heart, he says there can be nothing divine in that light. That knowledge is that knowledge is no true spiritual knowledge of divine things. Now, in one sentence, Jonathan Edwards just he exploded my worldview many years ago. I want to read it to you. He says this: it is the great if the great things of religion are rightly understood they will affect the heart. You see? And so Jonathan Edwards doesn't cast aside experience. He doesn't cast aside the heart, nor does he cast aside the mind. He says we must bring the mind and the heart together. If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. And so knowing God is a combination of knowing Him in the intellect... And experiencing him in the heart. Nico, would you come on up here? I asked Nico a few minutes ago if he would help me. And as I was, you know, you always have to vet the person like you vet a politician. Sometimes our politicians are very bad at that, right? So I, Nico, I don't know if you know this. I vetted you. You know what that means? I asked you one question. What was that question I asked you? Do you like candy bars? (laughs) Do you like candy bars? And he said, yes. Aaron, his mom, also said, so do I. So this is kind of a one-person illustration. Sorry, Aaron. So, Nico, what I want to do is uh, I want to give you a candy bar. And you have several choices. Now, I I decided to pick the greatest candy bar in the history of the universe. All right? One is the Reese's Sticks. All right? So that's option one. Option two would be Reese's Crunchy. And then option three, one that I know a lot of people have never had, is Reese's Fast Break. Whoever invented this should be locked up. Man. And then you have Reese's Crispy Crunchy. You don't look very excited. If not, I'm going to do it for you. And then you have Reese's Sticks. So which one would you like to to consume in front of your church family? That's what I thought. I knew you'd pick the big one. All right. So while I'm opening this up... Would it be okay if I shared this with you? Sure. Okay, I won't touch it because I'm a, I'm a germ freak. I don't want you to get my germs. Okay, can you grab that one for me? I can't believe you do that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's... let's uh, I want to tell the church family about this before you and I enjoy this amazing candy bar together. I think if I had a choice of a steak dinner or a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, Reese's <laughs> Peanut Butter Cup every time. Did you know there's Reese's Peanut Butter Cup cereal? I should have brought that, too. It, oh, it, it is wonderful. You pour the cereal in the bowl, right? In a great big bowl. Now, my wife has a great big bowl when we have people over. And one time, I poured the cereal in a big bowl. It was like the whole box. And like half a gallon of milk. Oh, man, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. It was wonderful. So when you eat the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup cereal... The first thing you notice is the crunch. How many of you know you know Guy, the food guy with the spiky hair? This is the way he does it. You got the crunch, and you got the sweetness, and you got you got the the, the amazing aroma, and it, it cascades over your tongue, down into your throat. It goes into your stomach. Oh, and you rub your stomach. Oh, Whew, it's wonderful. Are you getting hungry? Are you just like, get on with it, Pastor? <laughs> Come on, be done with it. Well, here's the point I want to make is you can tell people how amazing this candy bar is. And I can't even tell you how amazing it is. But right now, we're going to experience it. So you ready? You want to do it together? So let's let's, let's knock candy bars. There you go. All right. Here we go. Ready? Mm. What do you think? Don't you dare say you don't like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups or I'm in big trouble. Because last week the illustration didn't work, right? You like creased Peanut Butter Cups? Does it taste good? Does it put a smile on your face? You want another bite? You want all of those? Okay. <laughs> so do you know the name of your dentist? <laughs> That's my dentist. So, I, in fact, I'm going to see Dr. Ross tomorrow, and I will, I will tell him all about this, and I will make sure that he sends me a thank you note. All right? So here's the point for all of us together, Nico, is we can we can tell people about God, how wonderful he is, that he's holy, that he's loving, that he's merciful. Oh, and Jesus is such a wonderful Savior. But when we actually experience God, did you know that there's a bunch of people out there that are going, oh, where'd yours go? So... Let's know God and experience Him in the heart as well. Thanks, buddy. Now, knowing God will affect us in very, very important ways. It's what I like to say, that knowing God affects us in the the daily rub of life. And there are several things you see in your notes, ways that knowing God affects us. Let me run through these quickly. First of all, in the area of relationship. As we know God, we recognize that we are called sons and daughters. 1 John chapter 3 says it like this. See what kind of love the Father has given, there's that word again, given to us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. Secondly, we may boldly approach the throne of grace. Hebrews 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. We know that our sins are forgiven if we're followers of Jesus. And there are many verses that point us in this direction. One is Psalm 103, verse 12. It says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Fourthly, if we are in Christ, we have peace with God. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Five, we we have hope. Titus chapter 1 says that in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Number six, we have power over sin because we know God. Romans six six says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Number seven, we have joy. We learned a few weeks ago that that joy, there, there is a corresponding fight for joy is we fight for joy on a daily basis. God's Word in Psalm 16 says, You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now some of you, when I asked, what is the definition of eternal life? Wrote, heaven. And indeed, that is a part of eternal life. And that is number eight, is if we know God, one day we will go to heaven. And we will spend All eternity on the new earth with our God and Savior. And so there's something very important that we need to realize. We need to realize the meaning of eternal life. Secondly, we need to recognize the author of eternal life. And we know here in John chapter 17 that it is God the Father who is the author of eternal life. Jesus says that he is the only true God. And the only true God refers to that which is genuine. It refers to the the real deal. It stands contrary to the the fictitious, to the counterfeit, to the imaginary. Now, most of you don't know this about me, but I, you know everyone has their weakness, right? With some with some guys, it's cars. And like to to Jerry and, and Chris likes trucks. And those of you guys into cars and Tom Johnson i just don 't get it. a car' is a car. Chris is always telling me we got what do you tell me about my car Chris we 've got to hike it up and put the stuff on the windshields and make me look like a tough guy and it 'll never work but i don 't get cars. Nothing wrong with cars. You know what I get? I like watches. <laughs> I- I just always have. My first watch was a Mickey Mouse watch and man, it, it was my prized possession. My next watch was one of those digital watches, Ooh boy, I had that for a long time with the plastic ones, you know, so that you can get for like 20 cents now. And so I've had watches as I've grown up. I just got a new watch and I, I just like watches. Well, have you ever been to downtown Seattle and run into a watch salesman? How many of you experienced that? It goes something like this, you're walking down First Avenue, right? going down to pike place market or something and a guy whoosh, comes out just whoa and he's got a trench coat on it's like i don't like the way this is looking whoosh, and he opens it up he's got all these watches rolex watch thirty dollars <laughs> like thirty dollars for a rolex now just for fun this morning i, I double checked my facts you know i found a watch online this morning for hundred and seventy nine thousand dollars thirty like, dollars that's a deal And so the unsuspecting tourist, right, pays $30 for a Rolex. And then on further examination, he comes to figure out after it stops working on the third day that it's not a Rolex at all. What is it? It's a fake. It's a fraud. It's a phony. It's a sham. It looks good on the outside, but it's a phony. I want to say this this morning as we examine this high priestly prayer there there is nothing fake or phony about god he is the only true god he is the real thing and so are you searching for truth i pray that you are are you searching for real life i hope that you are recognize that god is the author of eternal life he indeed is the only true god now think about it this way if God is the only true God. What do we do with the other so-called gods that we see swirling around our pluralistic culture? What do we do with? And none of this will be very popular. Maybe even with this group. But what do we do with the God, the Muslim God, Allah? What do we do with the the Hindu deities of Vishnu and Shiva? What do we do with the multiple gods and the multiple world religions when Jesus Christ here says in very plain terms that God, he is the only true God? Here's the simple fact. If God is the only true God, all the other gods are that $30 watch. They may look good. Their writings may sound good. Their worshipers may look good and and appear to have some semblance of the truth, but they're all phonies. Allah, here's a message you're not going to hear on Fox News, Allah is a phony. Vishnu and Shiva, the Hindu deities, are cheap substitutes. They're all idols. Now, Francis Schaeffer, in the late 1970s, he used to say this. He used to, he used to say, absolutes imply antithesis. Now, for many of you who say, here we go again, absolutes imply antithesis. Help me out. Look at the two words. Absolutes. If you make an absolute statement, such as, there are 24 hours in every day. Would you raise your hand if you believe that? What would you say if tomorrow a scientist told you, we have discovered that there are 29 hours in every day? How many of you would believe it? Not a one of you. Why? Because you believe in absolutes. You believe there's 24 hours in a day. Now, on to the next word, antithesis. Antithesis means this. If you have a a proposition that you hold to be true, There are no competing propositions that can stand the test against that statement. That is to say, if you believe there are 24 hours in a day, and the scientist says there's 29 or 27, you know, first of all, he doesn't believe in absolute truth. You know, second of all, he rejects the notion of antithesis. Here's another example. Someone help me. How many sides does a square have? Anyone? Four sides. Who said that? How many years of geometry did you have, Morgan? All it takes is one, right? To know that there are four sides of a square. If I said, Morgan, I disagree. And I flunked algebra, mind you. But I'm going to give it a shot. Okay? Nathan didn't hear that. There are three sides to every square. What would you say? If you didn't hear Morgan, she said two things very important. That, no, that's a triangle. And here's the thing that we're unwilling to tell people in our culture. You're wrong. You're wrong. You got it wrong, man. Right? Because four sides, triangle, three... or Four, four sides... Thanks, Morgan. Four sides, square, three sides, triangle. And what do you know about the angles of a triangle? Someone... They're what? They add up to 180. 180. How did you know that, Kirk? Geometry. Geometry. I should have done better in that class. (laughs) Now think about what Schaeffer says. Absolutes imply antithesis. He goes on to say, We must not forget that historic Christianity stands on the basis of antithesis. Without it, historic Christianity is meaningless. The basic antithesis... And I want all the high school students and all the university students in particular, please remember this. I believe that every high school student, every college student should read everything they can for Francis Schaeffer. I've thought that for almost 30 years. He says this, the basic antithesis is that God objectively exists in contrast to his not existing. He put it this way, he is there. And he is not silent. He is there and he is not silent. He has given us his word. He has spoken to us through his son. And Schaeffer contends that the loss of antithesis has led to a relativism in our culture where we begin to invent our own gods. And the invention of these gods has led to what he coined the line of despair. He says, these people have given up hope of achieving a rational, unified answer to knowledge and real life. Here's my question. As a follower of Jesus, have you subtly bought the lie where you have given up in your search for real life? If you're not a follower of Jesus, the question is is as penetrating as the former. Have you given up your search for real life? I hope the answer is no, because the Bible says that Jesus Christ is God's son, that he is the means of eternal life. John chapter 14 is very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they may have what? Life, real life, and have it to the full. First Timothy two five, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, and so we first of all, we realize the meaning of eternal life. secondly, we recognize the author of eternal life, and there 's a third, and I close with this: we need to respond to the offer of eternal life. How do we do it? How do we respond well. There's two very important elements. One is the matter of conversion. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, know first, you can never work your way to God. You can never buy your way to God. You can never do a whole series of things to make God happy. Rather, you have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to admit that you're a sinner, that you have failed to glorify God as he has called you to glorify him. You have failed to be satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ, which places you under his almighty wrath for refusing to regard him as trustworthy. So you not only admit that you're a sinner, you acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And then you ask Jesus to forgive you of all your sins and say, God, I want to know you, not just in the mind, but experience you in the heart. I want you to be the captain of my ship. I want you to be the new CEO of my life. You're my boss. You're my sin bearer. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My atheist friend asked me one day, save from what? The answer is God saved from the wrath of God. And then if you're trusting Christ today, and for the vast majority of you who are walking with Jesus, what is the next important element of what it means to respond to the offer of eternal life? There's the word cultivation. And that is for Christians who desire to know God in a deeper way. How do we cultivate that relationship with him? In that very important scripture in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 The Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. I want to give you an acronym. It's not in your notes. It's not on PowerPoint. But it's something you can remember for the rest of your life. It's the acronym CANS. You heard that phrase, kick the can? C-A-N-S. And the acronym stands for Community, Adoration, Nurture, and Service community, adoration, nurture, and service. So if we cultivate our walk with God, our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we commit ourselves to community. That is, we commit ourselves to being together. And uh, Jerry and Judy had the elders and deacons and staff to their place just a few days ago. And I was sharing with a few people that Jerry did the devotion. And it was, a, it was short, wasn't it, Jerry? I should ask Judy. Was it short enough, Judy? It, I think it might have been the shortest devotion I've ever heard in my life. But it was powerful. And here's the one sentence, Jerry, that just gripped my heart. Jerry said, I want to challenge all of us just to make a commitment to be together. And why is that so powerful? Because I've learned... And, and I think especially in Whatcom County, I don't know why it is, but we are, and we've addressed this before, in Whatcom County, we tend to be kind of like this. Busy, 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 busy. Too busy to have people over. I'm too busy to sit down and listen to my friend's struggles. I'm too busy to just enjoy people in the household of faith. And so, Jerry, I want to thank you publicly for that challenge for us to commit ourselves to being together. Kyle Christensen and the ministry that he has and getting together informally with men for families to come to the gym night. These are all, these are not tack-ons. These are not things that Kyle has put together just to fill his calendar, right? Because he's a busy man, right? He has other things he could be doing, but we need to commit ourselves to Community Does that mean you go to everything? And believe me, there are some who think pastors, in particular, should be at every event. And the response to that one, it's right there in the Bible, is hogwash. It's somewhere in there. I'm sure it's in there, right? No, we don't need to be at everything, but we do make a commitment to come together in community. Adoration, the second A, the second letter in Cans. That simply means we commit ourselves to worshiping The living God, both corporately and also individually nurture. That simply means we are committed to the word of God. And there's a great legacy at Christ Fellowship where from this pulpit, the word of God is proclaimed. It has been for many, many years and will continue to be proclaimed for many years. But it's more than just pulpit ministry. It's also women's Bible study. I want to challenge the women to get involved in this newest Bible study. I want to challenge the men on October 25th. That's a few weeks away, but we'll begin another round of Ironman, something completely new and different and exciting. My goal, all the men. That's my goal. I never reach the goal, but it's the goal every year to get all the men to Ironman. Also, Veritas is we have a new round of Veritas classes beginning on September 11th. I'll begin with Kyle. Kyle Christensen will have a class that will be limited to 12 men. The 13th man, Kyle's going to have to say, sorry, man, got to go to Dave's class, got to go to Tom Junkmas' class. But Kyle will be focusing on men fighting for purity by grace and grace alone. Tom Junkmas will teach a class on an introduction to Christian apologetics, and I will teach a class on the healthy church member, especially designed if you are not a church member, you're interested in church member membership, and want to learn more about what it means to be a healthy church member. Finally, what is the last letter in cans? It's the letter S, which is service. Is we commit ourselves to serving not only on the church campus, but out in the community some of you don't have ministries on the church campus but you have ministries off campus and so we salute you I've talked to a few of you who don't have a ministry on campus and you don't have a quote-unquote ministry off campus but your place of employment is your ministry if that's you I salute you we serve the living God so where do we turn for real life what's the answer to the question We turn to a personal relationship with God in the quest for real life. The last Sunday of October, I will be preaching our typical Reformation Day sermon. It's usually my favorite sermon of the year. And this year, to give you a preview, I will be taking a specific passage of Scripture and challenging you, with the life of the great Scottish reformer John Knox. John Knox died in 1572. He was a great man of God who had a deep passion for Scotland, his homeland. And on his deathbed, he uttered these final words to his life, to his wife rather. And for me, what a man says before he goes to be with his creator is all important. And he said this to his wife. He said, go and read where I cast my first anchor. That means nothing to any of us. But his wife knew what was the verse that God used to grip him. What was the verse that God used to change him. And so she ran and, and got her Bible, her Geneva Bible that her husband helped to translate. And she read from John chapter 17. Verse 3, and she read these words, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is your relationship with God like this morning? Do you know him? Do you really know him? not just on a piece of paper, not just the X's and the O's, not just that there are three sides of a triangle. Do you know him? Is he your boss? Is he your leader? Is he your savior? Is he your best friend? Is he your sin bearer? Only when you can say yes to all those questions will your quest for real life come to pass. In some respects, and this thought occurred to me as I was up early this morning, but the message, in some respects, has been very basic for some of you. A basic salvation message. You realize the meaning of eternal life. You recognize the author of eternal life. And long ago, some of you say, yes, pastor, I responded to the offer of eternal life. If that's you today, and that is many of you, I want to, I want to challenge you to go deeper into grace. My challenge is to encourage you to go deeper into grace. Your challenge is to determine, what does that look like for me? Does it mean I devote myself to a a certain section of Scripture? Does it mean I, like John Knox, read through the book of Psalms once a month? Does it mean, as a good friend of mine told me a few days ago, that he memorized the book of Romans? (laughs) You don't have to do that. That's pretty hardcore. (laughs) But can you imagine if, if we did that, made a commitment to memorize the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to meditate on the Word of God, to, to serve here on our church campus, to serve in the marketplace of ideas? I want to challenge you to go deeper into grace, to, to cherish your relationship with God through Christ, to nurture that relationship with God. But this message for some of you may have been an answer to a lifelong search. In Christ, the search is over. In Christ, the search is over. I heard about a famous rock star who played in the band Kansas, who read book after book after book after book. He was searching for real life. He was searching for reality. And he read and read and read, and he studied and he talked, and he, he traveled around the globe. And then one day, Jesus grabbed him by the shirt and got a hold of him. And the Holy Spirit took residence in his heart and his life has never been the same. In Christ, the search is over. And now the quest for real life for you has only just begun. Let's pray together. Father, as we move forward into John 17, I uh, am so excited to see this exchange between you and your son a prayer that was prayed out loud for the disciples to hear a prayer that was not only read out loud so that they can hear a prayer that was written on parchment a prayer that is in our laps now on our Bible in our Bibles and so God I pray that as we walk through and learn about the high priestly prayer from the wide angle view and from the you looking through the microscope that we would become more acquainted with jesus that we would grow to to love him more that we would recognize that eternal life is found in knowing you that eternal life uh, comes by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone god i pray that you would help us at christ fellowship to grow deeper into grace I think of the new Veritas classes. I think of the new women's Bible study. I think of Iron Men that will begin in October. That these would be uh, outlets for your people to explore, to learn, to benefit from, and that you would grow your people in grace. That you would grow them in the Word of God. That we would understand that the essence of eternal life is knowing God. And so, God, as we sing this final song, may you fill our hearts with joy. And may you prepare us as we are sent out here in a few moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.